Welcome to Senior Moments on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Hi, everybody. Uh, this is Dawn Hemingway, your host for Senior Moments. Uh, I'm here today with uh, guest uh, Stephanie Sparks. Um, Stephanie uh, is an engineering student at CNC, and she was one of the uh, keynote, I guess we'll say speakers, for um, the... Uh, National Day of Remembrance and Action on Violence Against Women that took place in December at CNC. And that is, uh, I'm sure most people know, but that is the anniversary remembering the 14 women at Ecole Polytechnique who were murdered um, in uh, 1989. And so that's a day every, every year that we mark uh, um, our fight against uh, violence um, against women and look at what's happening in the current days um, following that horrible event of 1989. So Stephanie spoke at that event about a human rights case in relation to a, a sexual assault um, at U UBCO, Okanagan, and she fought that case uh, over many, many years and uh, very uh, happy that um, there was at least a, a conclusion from the Human Rights Commission in August of this past year in 2023 and um, uh, where through which Stephanie received an award for damages and various things. But the main th thing is that this was a long, long drawn out uh, well, I, I would call it a battle, I suppose, right? I mean, it really was yeah. to um, try and get um, your rights recognized, basically. Um, so before we start about Stephanie's, though, I thought not, not quite on the mark, but I did read an article yesterday which made me think about today, and that was um, some stats from uh, 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 Stats Canada, and they were looking at... Um, and this is not about post-secondary campuses or anything. This is about workplace. But I thought it was quite interesting that according to the data that was just released by Stats Canada, 47% of women and 31% of men reported experiencing some form, now this is of harassment or sexual assault in the workplace. And that's a survey out of, the data came out of a survey that was done a few years ago in 2020, but they compared it to the data from 2018. So where, where in 2020, 40% of women said they'd experienced it. In 2018, it was 19%, which I found quite disturbing. However, um, it's possible that there were different um, methodologies used and, and yeah, so we're not I can't make a straight comparison, but, but anyway, it just made me think these issues um, of assault or sexual assault are really very much still um, huge problems and things that need to be out in the open and need to be addressed. And so really, really appreciate your willingness to come and, and chat about this. And uh, I know it uh, must be, on the one hand, you must feel very good about the fact that you've took this through to the end and you have the um, result now um, at the same time yeah I'm sure quite a challenge I haven't mm -hmm. had to go through that so I can't say that I know myself but I can imagine that a uh, really difficult to go through thank you yeah it's definitely a two-sided coin for sure <laughs> <laughs> anyway I wondered before we started talking specifically about um, that case and how it developed and and sort of how things went if you could just I don't know just share a little bit about yourself with folks 
Uh, sure. So I grew up a military brat, so I got to spend uh, a lot of my childhood in Alaska and then the rest of my teens in the States in Seattle. Oh, wow. That, yeah, so it's quite interesting coming to Canada just for my graduating year of school and, oh, and getting wow. to, yeah, do that at 16, 17. Oh, neat. Mm-hmm. And now you're actually in school right here at CNC. Yeah, here in Prince George. Yeah. And the program, I, I you know, I know it's a relatively newer program, a couple of years, I think. Yeah, I think this is the third year they've third run year. it. Yeah. So what is, what is it called? It's the Civil Engineering Technology it's Program. Civil Engineering Technology. I knew there was something after the engineering, but I couldn't remember. <laughs> okay. All right. So you're, and we were talking before we went on air that you're hoping that this will be completed by next academic year? Yes, I plan on graduating April of 2025. Wow. That must be exciting. Yes. Especially as your, our listeners will hear how much time has sort of passed. Yes. since you started that work in the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for yeah sure. back in 2012 was when I was in first semester at UBCO. Wow, and yeah. it was also for engineering. Yes, civil engineering. Same yeah. thing, mm-hmm. gosh. Well, I'm wondering, you know, if you could give us a, a, a broad overview, at least, to start off of what, what the situation was and what you've gone through, and then maybe we can get into some of the, the um, parts of it in, in more detail. For sure, yeah. So in... January of second semester, so in 2013, I experienced a sexual assault at the hands of one of my classmates. Okay. And I reported it to a few different departments at that time, but wasn't met with any sort of meaningful response back then. It took three years before I learned of the non-academic misconduct process, which at the time was the only avenue for redressing a complaint of of that magnitude, although it didn't include me as a party in the complaint. So that's where the the legal action started was in was in 2016. Wow. So so just to be clear, um, when they what was the com- the process the process that they said you could go through? Uh, the non-academic misconduct process, which was the same process for if there was vandalism on the school property. Yeah. Its purpose was to determine whether or not the the student in question had violated the student code of conduct effectively and it had nothing to do with me, my feelings or my experience right. really. It was yes or no for the person who may have done whatever they were accused of doing exactly i have some familiarity i'm a retired prof and i i i do remember that there is that that kind of process right yeah Yeah. i do Mm -hmm. so it's quite different than actually having an appropriate um, sexual assault policy and process oh immensely different yeah. yeah and that that was something that was not in place at that time no i think that the the government mandate for having a standalone sexual assault policy came out the following year in 2017, I think it yeah, was. Yeah, I know it was either 16 or 17. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah in that time. So, yeah. so we're in a time frame when that simply didn't exist. Mm-hmm. And so if anything like uh, sexual assault happened, it, it did go under this non-academic conduct, which just seems so... Right, yeah. Uh, strange. I was told that I was the first student at the Okanagan campus to ever go through the NAM process for a sexual assault complaint, which made sense because it was so horrific. <laughs> <laughs> Not a good process. <laughs> no. Well, I read um, uh, some accounts um, that ha- have been published in the media over the last few years, but especially after the award came out, I think it was in August of Yeah, I think last August year. 25th, I think. Yeah. yeah. So there were a number of articles that I had a look at. And one of the things, if you're okay with talking about it, that I found quite um, disturbing was the process. And I, I mean, it, it um, as some of the articles pointed out, 
it truly seemed that you had no um, opportunity to really, well, you could advocate for yourself, but there was no process to deal with you at all. Yeah, there was no one that was, I guess, designated to be my audience, so I was kind of shouting into the void, effectively. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. So can you talk, a, a, to whatever extent you want to, but a little bit about how that process went? So you made the complaint. How, how do you make the complaint? Right. I was referred to um, UBCO's security team, uh, okay. and their leader was the one that kind of led through that process and, and uh, interviewed me, took my statement and all that kind of jazz, and then went and conducted his investigation and prepared uh, the NAM committee to do their version of a, a hearing or, you know, like a trial between uh, the person I had complained about and the university. So NAM st- stood for non-academic... Misconduct. Misconduct, yes, yeah. yeah. No, just for the listeners, because it takes a little bit to, <laughs> to get to, <laughs> to remember those things. Lots of acronyms. Yeah. So you you had um, someone from security that uh, sort of supported you through it, or really just told you what the process was? It didn't sound like, from the accounts I read, that there was a lot of things that one could call support. No, I was definitely treated as a witness. So he, if he had uh, questions, he would come to me. But if I had questions, I wasn't necessarily, uh, he didn't answer them necessarily, right? Like it was, it was very much like I was kind of just a resource for the process, which didn't feel good. So you were the, you were the, the witness to determine whether or not there had been non-academic um, misconduct. Yeah, but you were the one who was harmed in the process. Yeah, yeah, and being treated as a witness of your own sexual assault was very, uh, I guess, dehumanizing. Wow. Mm-hmm. So when did you start to get some... Well, okay, first of all, what happened with that process? So you went through the NAM. Right, so yeah. the the first sort of hearing, which might not be the correct word, but the in, in terms of what was going on, the first hearing was scheduled for... September 2nd in 2016 and it was cancelled with less than 24 hours notice which was very detrimental to my mental health at the time uh, and so I didn't have a lot of I didn't have a lot of faith in the pro, um, the process to begin with and then mm-hmm. when that happened it was what was left was absolutely shattered and uh, I had been in counseling for a while at that point and my counselor suggested that I step back uh, and then I had just acquired my lawyer uh, Clea Parfit um, and she started advocating for me at that time as well saying that uh, you need to drastically change your process if this is going to be non-harmful to Stephanie going forward. So I when I was reading about the case I noted that um, you it, it through that non-academic process, uh, no one had suggested that you ought to have a lawyer, but yet it looks—it looked like, from what I read, the person who was accused of uh, the sexual assault um, had a lawyer through the process, but you didn't know. Yeah, I wasn't aware that he had. Um any of the supports until I had, a lot of the paperwork came out in disclosure in the Human Rights Tribunal proceedings, um, which was really jarring. I found out that they had given him my medical records, access to my medical records, so that he could defend himself better, which um, was deeply disturbing to me. That seems almost... hmm. I told him I felt like my privacy had been violated. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Was was there any acknowledgement of that? Uh, No, but I'm glad that it was... I mean, it's recorded in the the court proceedings. It's in the court proceedings, so it's there. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Okay, so you, you... have this how long so you waited three years to find out a process that you could use after you had already let 
um, people know what had happened to you. Yeah, and still seeing this person on campus and in classes and in group work in the meantime. So that was going to be my question. So if there was a three-year gap, so you were literally still in the same classes? Uh, not in every class, but in, in, in any of the same ones. Yeah, yeah, because he went into a different uh, discipline, uh, a sub-discipline of engineering. I stuck with civil, and he was in electrical. So there were a few overlapping classes starting in third year. And was nothing done by the university to try and deal with that situation, given that it was ongoing? Right. Like, I had spoken with the engineering advisor and let her know that I didn't feel comfortable attending one of the classes that we were both in. So she told me that she would... Um, mark it on his like his record and mark it on mine that I was going to fail that class for that reason but that's that was the outcome I did not attend the class and I failed it and it was a required course for me and it was not a required course for him wow that's real I mean it's quite anyway it seems quite disturbing (laughs) yeah to put it mildly yeah yeah Mm -hmm. no I can really understand how well can I really understand but I have a sense of how tough that must have been on you Mm-hmm. Yeah, I felt completely unprioritized um, in, in every arena with them. Wow. Okay, so you go through that process, and what was when was the conclusion, and what was it? Um, so after Clea had uh, tried to advocate with, uh, for me by sending some letters, and same with my psychologist, um, UBC denied to adopt any sort of different process and said that they were rescheduling the non-academic misconduct committee hearing for November 25th of 2016. I refused to participate, uh, and then my refusal to participate meant that they were going to rely on the other person's word entirely, and they concluded that there had been no non-academic misconduct because it was his word versus nobody's. Um, And so he was cleared, and I think I got the letter saying that he was cleared in April of 2017. Okay, so you get that letter. You still have your lawyer at that point? Yes, yes. And what, what, rec- what recommendation did she make, or, I, or, or how did you proceed after that? Um, well, after I had met with her in 2016, she let me know that, um, yeah, if I was interested in filing a human rights complaint, I would have to put together a chronology, which I started in February of 2017 and finished in March. And so thankfully, I had sent her all of my documentation, all of my evidence and that kind of jazz. And so she had that and then used that to prepare a complaint and then incorporated the April decision into that. And we filed on August 30th of 2017. So that was the first sort of like the actual legal start to my complaint with the human rights tribunal started on that day wow which didn't which didn't <laughs> conclude until 2023 so okay <laughs> right. yep. so what what happened in between like what was the oh so much um like when I asked Clea I was like okay so you're gonna like you're gonna get all my paperwork which was you know it was like st- I used a banana for scale I sent her so much stuff in the mail right and, and I was like how long is it gonna take for all this you know to get to get closure on and yeah and she said it usually takes about two years um and so that was in 2017 and so I was like great so 2019 I'll be free um and then the pandemic hit before oh right, <laughs> before, right. and um, we could get to the hearing stage and so that really pushed things back okay so that yeah. was really the delay then yeah the, uh, the biggest part the biggest uh, part okay yeah. so then you have the hearing was it one that you went to in person or how does that work um, and because it started during the pandemic, thankfully we were able to do it. I, I did a video call in, okay, and so we did it that way. Um, but there were some issues throughout the proceedings, so it ended up um, the hearing itself took place in three different time frames. There was, I think, a few weeks, and then there was a few months break, and then there was a week again, and then almost a year break, and then another two days. So it was a, it spanned nine months, and I think we were uh, like uh, close to five weeks in total. 
Okay. Yeah. So if you were um, reflecting back on sort of the key steps that took place, maybe um, you could share it. Because I don't know how many um, folks who are listening would have familiarity with that process of taking something, even regardless of what it is. I mean, which, of course, is central to what we're talking about. <laughs> but I do think people would be interested in understanding, like, I'm assuming the first step is that the human rights um, tribunal, there has to be, uh, people have to have uh, recognized that there is probably a case here or something yes, like that. Yes, yes, there's many hoops to jump through and a lot of layers of filtering to make sure that they're spending their, their time and energy on stuff that's going to be likely productive for society. Um, and so jumping through those hoops was, yeah, time-consuming. Um, you Like the complaint that we initially submitted in August, you know, let's say that it, it covered 100% of what I wanted covered. And then, you know, 10% gets knocked off with the first hoop, another 10% for this. And it ended up being, you know, skinnier than I had wanted when it got through. But I was so grateful that it did get through. Um, and then part of the reason for why it was delayed again was that um, – UBC filed in the Supreme Court saying that there was some sort of prejudice against them that the tribunal had accepted my complaint at all. And so I had to go beat them in Supreme Court before we could even continue on with the with the uh, Human Rights Tribunal. Wow. Mm-hmm. So the tribunal itself um, narrowed down what you had wanted to actually be considered or looked at? Is that... Yeah, correct. Like, we, I had wanted the timeline to start in 2013 with the, the date of the assault, right? Yes. And then... Um, they had made a distinction between me learning about my rights and me fighting for my rights. So the time period of 2013 to 2016 in February, when I had been in classes with my attacker, was uh, completely discarded. And so the, the time oh. period started in, in 2016 with the interview with the security, effectively. Okay. Which was, yeah, it was not what I wanted, but it was how it happened. Okay. So that's why then the what the... Um, what what did they look at then, if they ruled out all that? What were they looking at? Uh, how the process that UBC put me through, the non-academic misconduct process, uh, how it caused me harm going through that. So that, that was what the complaint was about. That yeah. was totally. So, so nothing about the actual um, assault on you. Right, which in a way was kind of easier in some aspects because I didn't have to worry about proving that or you know talking about that necessarily in great detail it was really about my interaction with the university from 2016 forward okay we're going to take a break now and then maybe we'll carry on with that a little bit sounds more good give your morning a boost with some sounds from above with songs in the chapel Sunday mornings at nine on 93.1 CFIS FM join me Corey Walker as I fill the airwaves with the sounds of heavenly gospel music I feature a mixture of traditional country, bluegrass, southern, and black gospel, and even a little bit of worship and contemporary Christian music. An inspiring message from the Salvation Army's Heartbeat series is featured in every show. As songs in chapel Sunday morning at 9, only here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. The Elder Citizens Recreation Association reminds patrons that they will be closed on Monday, Family Day. Also take note, tomorrow will be their birthday tea. There's a foot clinic scheduled for Monday, February 26th, and this month's general meeting will be on Tuesday, the 27th. More information is available on their website, eldercitizens.wixsite.com slash website, and at the ECRA office on 10th between Vancouver and Winnipeg streets. Forecast from Environment Canada for today, sunny, wind up to 15K, a high of minus 4, with a wind chill to minus 10. Tonight, partly cloudy, a low of minus 13. On Wednesday morning, fog patches, then sunny. Wind from the north at 20, a high of minus 5. 
with a morning wind chill to minus 20. You're listening to Senior Moments on 93.1 CFIS FM. Uh, with Stephanie Sparks and, and talking about her experience of going through a, an assault, a sexual assault, um, some 10 years ago, and then really working through a process ultimately with the Human Rights um, Tribunal. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So we were just talking before the break about the fact that the tribunal narrowed the um, scope of what they would look at. Mm-hmm. So not looking at the actual assault, but looking at the experience from, I, I'm just trying to remember exactly. Oh, uh, yeah, from February of 2016 with the security at UBCO until the conclusion in April with uh, them sending me the decision in 2017. Okay. So how did they characterize it then? This was about UBCO's process then? Right. Yes. Yeah. So just about the process. Yes. And in terms of, well, maybe you can talk a little bit about the um, process you went through with the um, complaint through the human rights. Um, So you started with, you had first first had to get them to accept the fact that this was a complaint that they would deal with, correct? Mm-hmm. I th- yeah. Yeah. So then what was, okay, so they say we'll deal with it. And then you said they narrowed it down to just this, the aspect from the time that you met with the security folks to the end, but not about the actual assault. Right. Yeah. So then that's decided. Then what's the next step? Um, uh, then it, afterwards, UBCO had made their application saying that it was um, prejudiced against them in some way for it to have been accepted. And so we had to take a, you know, a timely detour to deal with that in the Supreme Court of British Columbia. And once it was determined that it was not prejudiced against them for the Human Rights Tribunal of BC to accept my complaint, uh, then we started with the, the planning, the proceedings um, with the Human Rights Tribunal. Okay. And so can you talk a bit about what that was like? Like, like going through the hearing? Yeah. Yeah, it was it was very strange and very surreal. Like it feels like, you know, in you know, in my mind a little bit, it's like here's all this this thing that's all about me. It's all happening because, you know, I I want it to. It's, you know, it's kind of my my baby in that way. Um but I didn't I didn't have any power. Like I was in the room. I was, you know, I could only speak when I was asked to speak. I I couldn't, you know, I couldn't do anything outside of this very tiny box. So it was really kind of f- like freeing and empowering in a way, but at the same time like it, completely not it was very it was a very jarring weird experience <laughs> I think I kind of get that so in the sense that you um may have had things that you felt were relevant like you've just said they've just <laughs> said something and you're thinking but let me say this but you couldn't <laughs> exactly yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. but it must have been helpful to say the least to have the lawyer oh absolutely Clea has been a huge boon throughout this entire process okay yeah. mm-hmm. and so okay so then you go through that process um, and then there was a third step, like th- was it sort of the decision and then the award or? Um, well, the the last the last of the hearing dates was in February of 2020, and then there's a and then after you finish the hearing, then because um, both sides have heard everything that that you want to say, um, you file uh, like your final argument basically, and then the oh, other okay. side gets a chance to kind of counter that. So there's a lot of time spent with final submissions, and the final submissions didn't close until December of 2022. Okay. Yes. And so then, each of you, your lawyer and the university's lawyer, would look at those final submissions, and based on that, 
make an argument to the tribunal about what the final result should be or does the tribunal just get those packages and make the decision well because there is a little bit of back and forth you get to see um, what the other side is saying and so you can um, like anticipate like a counter argument right and so you get to present those counter arguments and then just after December 4th uh, just the chair of, um, of the proceedings gets to gets to make her decision based off of all of the submitted paperwork Okay, so before we talk about the actual decision, um, is there any appeal process after that? There is. There, um, UBC had 90 days available to them to appeal the decision, uh, and thankfully they did not. They did not. I think not. the final day was like Halloween of last year. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was okay. fingers crossed. Yeah, <laughs> let that day go by. Okay. Okay, so, so, so what, what did the, the um, Human Rights Tribunal conclude uh, they concluded that uh, my human rights had been violated uh, by UBC during the process, um, and then they awarded uh, damages to help repair that, um, in- including yeah, lost wages, uh, injury to dignity, and I think there's one other category that was included that was qu- oh yeah, my uh, some of my health receipts for counseling. Okay. Yeah. So, in in issuing that decision, do they? So they, they they gave compensation, but do they articulate beyond just we agree with the you know with with Stephanie, um, <laughs> you know with the, what's been put forward by her lawyer, um, or do they articulate anything about what's wrong with the process or how it should be different or is it that kind of result? Um, we had hoped for, or at least I had hoped for them to, there to be some sort of like this needs to be included in your future process kind of thing. Yeah. But I think that's a lot more of what's happening with the, the class with status complaint that's ongoing. Uh, that's the, you know, in the same arena. Um, and so I was kind of sad that that wasn't part of it. Cause I remember that was like the first thing I wanted in my remedies list when Clay's like, what do you, you know, what do you want out of this? Yeah. I was like, I want someone to never have to go through what I went through again. Uh, and so like the, the damages part wasn't appealing to me at all. Really. I wanted there to be systemic change. Yeah. That's why I went into the human rights realm and not to civil court, for example. Right. right. And so, um, well, it's nice that there was a positive outcome and the outcome was better than I thought because it, it will apply to workplaces and stuff. And that had never even crossed my mind yeah. until reading yeah. it in the paper. Um, it, yeah, it was. It's still a very powerful decision and set a lot of new precedents. So. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I absolutely think that. I just was curious. I didn't see it when I was reading some of the material, whether there had been anything about process, about the systemic process, okay, and, yeah. and there was not. No, um, but there were a couple lines that the chair wrote in her decision that um, I feel like, strictly legally speaking, didn't need to be included in there. Like, there was at one point where she said, like, you know, none of this needed to happen the way that I did. <laughs> and, uh, okay. and so it was nice to see some of those statements included, even though they're not um, necessarily legally relevant. Yeah. Now, I, I just want to jump back, because um, I forgot to um, ask you one question, and that was about um, going to the police originally. Oh, so, for sure. And, and, and that experience, because I, what I read about it was, you know, a bit disturbing. Yes, yeah, like, uh, quite sadly, that was... A, a much worse experience than having gone to UBC, which, you know, it's already a horrible kettle of fish. Um, because I had the policewoman that took my statement uh, refuse to take photographs of the bruises on my body at the time, saying that I could have given those to myself. 
Um, she compared my experience to being force-fed my favorite chocolate bar, um, oh and I was God. ultimately told that um, nothing would come of it than, you know, my attacker being getting a slap on the wrist, basically. So it was up to me whether or not I wanted that to happen, and if that was the only outcome, I, I totally left that at a dead end. And for all the faith I lost in institutions, my loss of faith in the police was the greatest loss. Wow. Mm-hmm. And that was, was that at a time before you had a lawyer? Oh, that was in 2013. So you were doing this on your own, and this was the reaction yes. from the yeah. police. Yeah, very saddening. No, it really is, and it unfortunately underlines some of the experiences that we hear about, mm-hmm. um, you know, from other other women who've experienced uh, sexual assault. And anyway, uh, so much more to be done in this realm, for sure. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so it's really good that you got that positive um you know response from the human rights tribunal i mean that that even though it's not perfect and there's <laughs> not that systemic stuff at at the same time it's a recognition that you did experience damage through this and it was discriminatory is that the language they used yeah on the basis of sex and mental disability yeah, yeah. okay we're going to take a quick break now and maybe when we come back we'll talk a little bit about just anyway your reflections on you know what maybe would be helpful and um and then maybe just a little bit about how you are going through this process (laughs) over such a long time Mm -hmm. so we'll be back shortly just before 11 a.m on monday january 22nd prince george rcmp received a report of a man with a gunshot wound from the moccasin flats area The victim was taken to hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. If you were in the area at that time, witnessed the incident, or have information that could assist the investigation, please contact the Prince George RCMP non-emergency line at 250-561-3300. You can also report anonymously online at northernbccrimestoppers.ca. At approximately 8.30 a.m. on January 5th, Prince George RCMP received a report of a gunshot from the Moccasin Flats area. A man was taken to hospital with a serious gunshot wound, and Fabian James Charlie was arrested by the Serious Crimes Unit. The investigation is ongoing, and police are looking to speak with anyone who was in the area at the time of the incident and may have seen anything suspicious. If you have any information about this or any other criminal activity, call the Prince George RCMP at 250-561-3300. You're listening to Senior Moments on 93.1 CFIS-FM. With Stephanie Sparks talking about um, her experience, um, having experienced sexual assault and then going through the legal process, sort of, or or trying to go through the legal process, and then finally the Human Rights Tribunal hearing your case, and and some success, which is very positive. Mm -hmm. Um, Just before we had our break, you were talking about your experience going to the police um, and I just, you know, I, I just want to say that that, that is ju- just so completely wrong. And uh, hopefully, as a society, we're pressuring um, enough that these kinds of things um, in, in, uh, in police forces and other places um, do not, um, are, are not considered acceptable in any way. And that, you know... Um, but that's what happened to you should never happen to anyone else. So that mm. was, uh, anyhow. Yeah, thank you. So <clears throat> I'm just wondering if you have, based on going through all this for such a, a lengthy period of time too, 
Um, any reflections on, uh, you know, change? I mean, I know we've had some change, so all the universities have to have a yes. process now. Yeah. So that's, you know, um, that certainly is thanks uh, to you and, and many others mm-hmm. um, to make sure that, that that happened. I think the biggest thing that stands out in my mind, because even after the new sexual assault standalone policy had come out, yeah. um, I had a GoFundMe page for uh, years ongoing, and I've had women that had gone through the new standalone sexual assault policy reach out to me saying that they were still feeling like it was you know harmful to them basically and um and and what can they do about it and so i feel like you can have a nice new shiny policy that's got no holes in it you know and all that jazz but it it doesn't mean anything if it's not being followed to a t um it really has to be um about the the people that it's about and not about just you know making sure that all your t's are crossed so i feel like that's kind of the biggest thing is not just oh we checked that box we can move on now it's you gotta you we have a policy yeah exactly (laughs) you have to actually do it (laughs) well it's it sounds familiar with lots of different um you know pieces of legislation and various things that we can you know as government various governments will say we have this policy but then when you look at how it's implemented um it's a far cry from what is written on paper (laughs) yes on paper is not in practice no and i think there's been many um you know um incidents and discussions and pushing since the policies were put in place that they're not adequate that there's weaknesses here and things aren't always followed through so but -hmm. at the same time you know kudos to you for persisting and being able to share this experience with people you know like it's quite a um well I I mean I was going to say it's remarkable I think it is remarkable to persist over that period of time you know that's that's no small period of time with with something that is so stressful mm-hmm. and so much about how you're doing you know and yeah i just um anyway admire that you did that and and i guess i don't know if you want to talk about it but just wondering how are you doing what's happening in life you know like <laughs> having yeah. gone through all that hopefully you feel good about having done it because i sure do like i just think oh, that's really powerful yeah, yeah. I, I gained a great many skills from it that i had never imagined i would have so it's nice to kind of have this plethora of tools in my toolkit that i you know i can do things now that i never dreamed of doing before including something like this so yeah Um, Yeah, it is really wonderful that it's got great outcomes for other people other than myself as well. And, you know, that's what I wanted. I wanted wanted it to have a a better benefit for other people. Um, Yeah, so now I feel very grateful (laughs) that I can focus on something else, (laughs) like like starting my career next year and getting into the the exact niche of engineering that I want to because I'm going to be starting work as a traffic engineering technologist this summer, and I've always wanted to focus on traffic. So it's nice to kind of get to spend my time and energy working on those kind of things. This is a small diversion, but I'd never heard of a traffic engineer technology before. So what does that mean? Uh, you, you work with a lot of data. I'm not sure what my specific role will entail, yeah, but yeah. Um, like the, the dream for me has always been to effectively improve public transportation in Canada. I think that we do a lot of reinventing the wheel when we don't need to, um, and so I'd like to focus on public transit specifically. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah. Well, there's a huge question for, uh, <laughs> for British Columbia, which um, is to ensure that people have um, intercity transportation. Yes. You know, that is um, affordable, that really connects people, that allows you to travel without having to stay overnight and cost a fortune everywhere. So mm-hmm. so would that be within the realm of what you're doing? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Like uh, I know Europe, you know, can, can kind of do it so much better in some ways because they're so much more compact and Canada being the beautiful country they are, we're so spread out, which is a, a major challenge, but I think a really unique and fun one to try to solve. 
Well, you know, I might I might ask you if you want to come back on again sometime. There is an organization that I don't know if you're familiar with in BC called Let's Ride. Oh, I have not heard of them. Yeah, and they're they're trying to pull people together from across the province uh, precisely about having uh, transportation that is accessible, that's affordable, and that connects and people, you know. And I'm passionate about it too because of um, the challenge that a lot of older adults have when they're living, especially when you're even living outside of Prince George and you're having Mm. to come in for health reasons. And we, of course, have a bus connected to Northern Health, but there's many other things that come up as you're trying to to make it to your appointments and then have to stay and you know just the cost of it all so anyway um oh I'm glad I asked that question because (laughs) it is no it really is an issue of concern Mm -hmm. and um and there's been some work done on it I know um I actually was involved in in writing an article about it for um the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives a couple of years ago with my partner and son actually um, looking at you know just just a a fairly broad overview just looking to see what's possible and what's not happening but we also made it uh, tried to make it uh, accessible and also to let people know about Let's Ride because those guys they started on the island but Aww, but nice. now they're everywhere. So I'll definitely um, be checking them out. Thank yeah, you. yeah. No, there's a really active person in Valemont that I could connect you with, actually. Fun. So there you go. <laughs> anyway, so so then I guess the final thing um, that I'd like to kind of just look at a little bit more is um, whether you f- have found that this has impacted you in engaging in other things. Do you know what I mean? Like you've you've fought this fight for ten years, so so now is is good transportation. That, <laughs> you know, I feel like I, I feel like the start of my engineering career will be a springboard into me doing uh, even greater advocacy work in the future, and that's something that I look forward to. No, that's great. Yeah. So that's one of the the big the big uh, positive results from mm-hmm. going through a really challenging challenging process. Mm-hmm. I think. Uh, I guess what goes through my mind as well, um, and you know, may or may not be something that you would want to take on, but I just think in the back of my mind and looking at the policies as they exist now and whether they're being implemented fully and whether they're adequate. And I know that there's been, you know, some, some organizations have felt that there's still quite a ways to go in terms of actual implementation. Right, yes, I hope that they have um, started collecting feedback on those sorts of things already. Yeah, and then the final thing is about the class action suit. Can you say anything about that? For sure, yeah, they just finished up another week in court on Friday the 9th, um, and I think they're back in on April 22nd, the, um, a Monday later this year. And can you share what it is that they're, in, they're striving um, for? Yeah, so I am a class member of, of the second definition. There's, there's two definitions in that class status case. The first one is for people... Uh, I think it's called the, the Mordenov class. Uh, and there's just a few people in that one. And then the second one is the general class, which is what I'm a part of. And I think there's um, 
a couple hundred women, if I'm not incorrect, at the start anyways, it might have, you know, skinny down since then. Um, but anybody that experienced a sort of sexual uh, assault and, and then complained about it or, or talked about it in some form to the university mm-hmm. between certain dates, they're a part of that class status complaint. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we'll maybe get you back to talk about that as it moves forward too, or, or one of the other people who are, are working on it. That would Absolutely. be really great. Mm-hmm. So I want to thank you. I know it's time for a break. So, um, and we're going to be uh, meeting now with, um, uh, Misha to talk about the uh, march tomorrow, the Women's Memorial March and uh, the Healing Fire. And you're welcome to stay and join us for that. But thanks so much for coming. Awesome. Thank you for having me, Don. Okay, really appreciate it. The Alzheimer's Society of BC's Northern Interior, Northwest, and Northeast Resource Center is located at 1811 Victoria Street. One-to-one in-person support is available by appointment. Book your appointment by emailing ldecruz at alzheimersbc.org. Call the office at 250-564-7533 or toll-free at 1-866-564-7533. The Northern Interior, Northwest, and Northeast Alzheimer's Resource Center, 1811 Victoria Street. Early in the dementia journey, it can feel daunting to think about what lies ahead. That's why it's important to plan now, before communication and decision-making become more challenging. Learn how to begin planning early for important legal, health care, and financial decisions February 20th. For caregivers and people living with dementia, getting your affairs in order, health care, legal, and financial planning, a free workshop Tuesday, February 20th from 10 to 1130. For more information, visit alzbc.org slash edu workshops. Forecast from Environment Canada for today's sunny, wind up to 15K, a high of minus 4 with a wind chill to minus 10. Tonight, partly cloudy, a low of minus 13. On Wednesday morning, fog patches, then sunny, wind from the north at 20, a high of minus 5 with a morning wind chill to minus 20. You're listening to Senior Moments on 93.1 okay. CFIS FM. We're back and uh, I now have with me um, Misha, who is... Um, from the Carrie Sakani Family Services, um, and uh, particularly, I mean, there's so many things we could talk about, but particularly want to talk about the Women's Memorial March and Healing Fire that are taking place tomorrow in Prince George. But also, if you'd like to, just tell us a little bit about yourself and as we start. Yeah, um, so I'm the mental health and uh, addiction recovery uh, worker at Carrie Sakani Family Services. Um, and I work really closely with the housing preservation team in Carrier Sakani. Um, and Psychas actually started the Healing Fires, um, and it was just a collaboration of ensuring that community members and nations work together um, so that we can have um, partnerships um, working together uh, to help support the the homeless community and the unhoused community um, struggling with addiction um, and mental health issues. No, uh, that's so important. Yeah. And really, um, I'm happy that you were able to be here because it's kind of unique tomorrow, I think, to have both the Women's Memorial March and the Healing Fire together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we know that, you know, there's so many um, murdered and missing Indigenous women, not just women, but um you know, in the LGBTQT plus community and men as well. Um, there's so many of them that, you know, and it's so important to be aware of that and 
and for people to just acknowledge that that this is happening on an everyday basis absolutely I'd like to talk a bit more about both of those things, um, but just maybe we'll let um, the listeners know about the, the details for tomorrow. Just Yeah, um, so from noon until 3, we will, um, so it will be starting at the uh, Native Friendship Centre, um, and, and then they'll be walking towards the courthouse where the cultural healing fire will be. So it's going to start off as the, the Women's Memorial March. Um, we're going to have speakers um, at, at both um, ends of the event. Um, so at noon, they'll start walking. Uh, or I, I guess probably about 12.15, they'll Realistic, start gathering. Realistically, yeah. we know how that goes. Uh, yeah, so um, we're going to have... Uh, prayer and stuff like that and a couple speakers at the beginning and then and I think the courthouse where um we'll have more speakers and stuff like that and um and and just bringing a lot of that awareness absolutely no I'm I I think uh you know the work that's been done um around the the healing the healing fires is really huge I think for the community um absolutely and you know these the the event like these healing fires couldn't happen without the community involvement um we partner with so many organizations so many nations um that you know we're so grateful that we we have these partnerships because we come together every month and you know build this community of support for Mm -hmm. people that are you know have so so many uh, mental health and addiction issues and are unhoused because of situations that brought them there and you know we don't know their all their stories we know you know i mean those of us that work with them we know some of their A stories of it, but yeah. but not everybody does right and it's just showing that little bit of kindness and compassion absolutely absolutely so i mean i've i've had the opportunity to be involved in a couple, um, one with Northern Fire and then one that was down at um, Moccasin Flats. Ours was at the courthouse. So if people, like, just to give a sense, so essentially it's once a month. Yep. And usually from about 11 or 12? Yeah, we usually start anywhere between... um 11 usually we start at 11 we started a little bit later this time just to coordinate with the, with march. the march yeah um just because it was important that we kind yes. of uh, collaborated with the vancouver march as well just so that it's in conjunction with them absolutely um and but yeah and we usually go for um till about two three o'clock um depending on when the food runs out um but, and, you know, we have lots of uh, community partners that bring, you know, to whatever the needs are, right? So hygiene supplies, toques, hats, mitts. Um, and, you know, we have tons, like lots of people bring Bannock. Terry, actually, <laughs> Terry's Bannock. She brings so much, like, you know, she's great every time she does her Bannock. And, you know, people love it. So it's, it's something that we, we get to you know engage in these in these things that are, you know on a monthly basis and it's it's really heartwarming it really is and i i also uh, really uh like the fact that there's usually drumming and yeah and there yeah. really is a fire when we yes, say healing yeah. fire that yeah so when we're at the courthouse we usually have a propane fire just because we can't have we an can't actual have fire a- <laughs> um but when we're at moccasin flat so we have we, we usually try to do three four big ones a year um so that's what we did last year um, and again, we'll 
we're aiming for the same and we do a bigger fire um, for the, the bigger ones. Um, during the, the season, the summer season, we couldn't have, so we did water brushing instead um, just because oh, of the never fires that, that were going on. Ah. Um, and But we make it work. Yeah. And, and I mean, at the end of the day, it's having these clients and and individuals that are connecting with um with resources that they might not be aware of either yeah. right so it's just it's bringing them to it's a lot we're you know we're meeting them where they're at and absolutely that's the biggest. yeah no that's really really important for sure um the other thing i guess with the um women's memorial march this year is that you're you're sort of bringing together well it's not really I was going to say two groups, but it's not really a lot of people are involved in both. But nonetheless, there, there is an opportunity for um, a lot more people to learn. I, I, I've heard from a few people that, that hadn't yet heard about the healing fire, but they knew about, you know, there was always a women's memorial march. So now they've learned about the healing fire as well. Yeah, no, and, and that is the great thing about working together in partnerships with other organizations and, and nations, right? We come together and some people haven't heard of us and, yeah. and then now they do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and then they want to come partner with us as well. And, and, and that's the thing is we're always welcome to bring people on board and, yeah, no. and work together. And I, can, uh, and I can attest to that, that it's very welcoming. And certainly on the, uh, um, I had an opportunity to be on some of the Zoom calls organizing. And you can see the number of people that are on that list, right? Yeah. So it's, it's very, very good. We have to take a break, but we'll come back and talk a little bit more. Awesome. Okay, thanks. The Prince George RCMP is asking for your help in finding 36-year-old Billy Joe Mindell. Billy Joe has not been seen since January 2nd. She is described as a Caucasian female, 5 foot 7, 155 pounds, with blue eyes, brown hair, and a feather and her initials tattooed on her face. If you know the whereabouts of Billy Joe Mindell, please call the Prince George RCMP non-emergency line at 250-561-3300. Learn to blend a background from acrylic paints onto canvas during Two Rivers Gallery's next Beads and Bannock event Thursday. Simple beadwork will then be added and finished off with Mandela-style dot painting. Registration is available through the gallery for just $25. Everyone is welcome to enjoy freshly made treats while learning traditional Native art. Beads and Bannock, dot painting with beadwork, Thursday evening from 6 to 9 at Two Rivers Gallery, where creativity flows in Canada Games Plaza. This is Senior Moments on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Well, we're back with um, Misha talking about um, both the Healing Fire and the Women's Memorial March. And uh, just I think Misha's just going to share a little bit more about, you know, sort of how things have gotten organized and who's sort of helping out with this. Yeah, so um, for so we we generally have um, certain organizations or nations that have um, volunteered to host um, each month. Um, so we like this month we have Clasden Nation is going to be our host um, and we just help provide the supports that they need to, to run it um, and we kind of are the, the back door I want to say the back door of kind of helping people um, bring this forward um, and it just comes in a beautiful way right and we you know we get to see the people light up in, in terms of having some of these resources available to them. 
Yeah, and I can speak also to that because when uh, Northern Fire, um, when we said we'd like to help bring some, you know, some food to one of the fires and one of the the smaller ones, it wasn't the big one, but it was at the courthouse and. So I was I was sort of worrying about getting tables and whether you know should we get coffee too and all these things and and then I <laughs> found out from Gary Sakani especially that you guys have got the bases covered right yes yeah so that we brought a whole bunch of sandwiches and some other you know some other things but you had some still had some soup and you still had coffee and tea and so yeah. and tables right yeah so, so we yeah we supply like a lot of the the main components of it because we don't want anybody to kind of worry about those pieces right we just we want them to be able to kind of think about the, the how they can best support um you know the, the unhoused in ways that they don't have to think about these little tiny details so yeah. um so yeah we take on that role and and just help support and yeah and just kind of run with it it really makes a difference i just have to say you know because as i said as you know depends on how big the organization is that's supporting but when yeah. you start thinking about you know where do you find all the things that you need to make it complete and to know that there's a team there, you know, that's going to make that easier for you. You, you try and bring some really substantial uh, material, you know, food and others, but absolutely. And, and that's the thing is it's been a learning curve, right? We've been, um, so initially for about a year we've been doing this and, and it's just come together and we've, we've really loved being a part of this and, you know, being a part of a community of people. I think, you know, one of the things for me that is um, really important about the healing fires, the march, the other actions and activities that take place is for people to be able to come together and, you know, just try and um, realize, you know, we're all one community. Um, Some people are having a tough time. We have to try and figure out um, how to support people and yeah. you know we were talking um, before y- you came on um, with Stephanie about making changes around you know um, sexual assault and and rules that you know having policies and but whether they're implemented and so yeah. you know I think for us in Prince George in particular but others listen outside of the city but here when we're looking at um, the challenges that people are facing um, uh, especially in the downtown core, but in other places across across the um, city and, and, and in smaller communities yeah. that we, you know, we have the wealth and the resources in this world to for everyone's needs to be met. Yeah. And, and you know. <laughs> we, we really do. And, and you know, we, and it comes down to working together, right? Mm-hmm. We come a long way in, in terms of how we partner with other organizations and and how we you know conduct ourselves as well and how we treat the people that we're working with and at the end of the day you know they're they're people too they're humans and we just have to remember that and we don't know their you know like i said in the beginning we don't know their stories nope, necessarily we don't. um or what mental illnesses they may have or or why or why right yeah. and so sometimes it's just kind of keeping that in mind that we're, we're not any different or they're not any different no, than we are it could right? be us yeah it could, it could be, us. be us we're all it really could. you know we could all end up in a situation that puts us you know in that same predicament and we just have to keep that at the back of our heads absolutely and we all have you know we had um the immigrant multicultural services society had 
um, an anti-racism rally on, or yes, not rally yeah. forum, forum on, yeah. on Saturday, and I I had the honor of speaking at it along with a whole bunch of other people in the community. And one of the things that you know really rung true for me is that, and yeah, and I guess it's at the heart of what I believe is that you know we all are human beings. We yeah. all have human rights. We don't have to get them because they're in the, you know, the human rights code or because we have a charter. We all, just by the fact that we live on this earth, yeah. we have rights. And, yeah. um, and we don't know what happens in other people's situations that they can't use those rights fully or they're denied those rights. Yeah. And we just have to have very open minds, hearts, and also, you know, work together to try and yes. change the yeah. situation. Yeah, no. It's yeah. a it's a, a tough kind of <laughs> thing to deal with, but necessary. It's very necessary. Yeah, um, we can't make these changes without you know advocating for the people that can't advocate for themselves. Absolutely. And, and you know even you know sexual assaults, right? Like that's something a yep. lot of my clients um, had that experience. Have that experience, yeah. and uh, so many women and men and LGBTQ plus have dealt with, and you know and. Or, you know, and that, you know, that may be a cause of their addiction or mental illness, right? The PTSD pieces, the, you you never know um, in terms of what is going on, um, you know, behind, behind the curtains, you know, as we say. And so we, we have to always keep that in mind. And that's, you know, coming together for these events is a time to when, you know, you can connect with each other, the different organizations, the different people, but also connect with people in the community who are having a rough time. Yes. And uh, it's really good to be able to um, connect and, 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 you know, just talk with people and just be with everybody so i think for uh, for me anyway i I just want to thank you very much for coming in and to to remind everybody 12 noon in front of the native friendship center tomorrow february 14th and then we'll march down to the courthouse have speakers and food and yes yeah we'll have soup and sandwiches and coffee tea yeah um, hot chocolate um there's gonna be lots of we're gonna have lots of food so please come <laughs> okay down. don't eat don't eat lunch before you come down yes. at noon yeah <laughs> okay thanks so much and You're and welcome. and carries the candy family services for everything you guys do thank you and thank you to, i want to say thank you to all our partnerships as well yeah so that, that make this possible okay thanks so much well um we're going to wrap up today with me letting folks know also about, um, in addition to the Women's Memorial March and Healing Fire tomorrow, on Friday, we have um, the BC Seniors Advocate, um, who is actually going to be leaving her post. She's retiring from her post um, at the end of March, but she's coming here um, to Prince George on Friday at 9.30 for a town hall meeting. And she's going to be talking about specific challenges faced by seniors living in rural communities and she wants to hear from people in Prince George and the surrounding communities um, about their thoughts about that so um, I'm really hoping that uh, folks will be able to come down it's at 9 30 to until 11 at the Elder Citizens Recreation um, Center on 10th so many of us call it ECRA on 10th Avenue 1692 10th so everyone's welcome to come and hear um, and let Isabel also hear from you. And in case there's listeners right now who are in uh, Quinell or you have friends or family in Quinell, um, I want you to know that also um, Isabel will be in Quinell on the same day at 1.30. 
and she'll be at the uh, senior center there, the Quinell and District Senior Center on Carson, and talking about the same thing and wanting to hear from you about the same question. So what is our experience of being in northern, rural, and remote communities as older adults? Or if your family, um, you're a family member of, of uh, you know, your mother or your grandmother, and you want to talk about their experience um, if they're not able to come, um, everybody is welcome to share that experience with her. And I think the uh, importance of our voice can be found if you get a chance to go to the Seniors Advocates website and look at some of the reports that she has put out over the last while, especially the one about uh, seniors falling further behind in British Columbia in terms of...